Welcome to Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Natalie. And I'm your other host, Harless. We both work on magic at Wizards of the Coast. We don't work on the story, but we work with the people who do. In this podcast, we recap magic story and condense it into easy to consume episodes. And of course, it wouldn't be magic without flavor text. So we'll give you our thoughts as well. This season, we are talking all about Dominaria United. Join us as we head into the multiverse. Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. Today, we're talking about episode four, A Brutal Blow by Langley Hyde. So today we're diving into episode four of Dominaria United's story. In our story so far, we have followed a machine humanoid golem planeswalker named Karn as he searches for proof that a terrifying biomechanical threat called the Phyrexians have returned. He finds proof in the underground tunnels of Dominaria in the form of Shieldred, one of the Phyrexian leaders. He sets out to gather allies in the impending fight against the Phyrexians, teaming up with fellow planeswalkers Teferi, a time traveler, Joda, a powerful mage, Jaya, a pyromancer, and Ajani, a Leonin warrior. While trying to convince the rest of Dominaria to stop the civil war on the plane and instead join the fight against the Phyrexians, they are attacked by Phyrexian spies in the council and forced to retreat. One of their Dominarian friends, Sten, offered New Argivia's watchtower as refuge. The previous episode was all about hunting a Phyrexian in this watchtower that had escaped with them. Karn and the others were quickly outmatched by this creature infusing itself into the technology of the tower. Distrust over who has been compromised into a sleeper agent all around the group. Turns out that the sleeper agent was Sten, who had practically turned all of New Argive into a Phyrexian staging ground. Having no choice but to escape, Karn calls the Weatherlight a massive flying ship. We had left on a cliffhanger last time, wondering whether our planeswalkers had escaped or not. It did look pretty dire. However, at the start of episode 4, we have some relief immediately. They made it out of the watchtower. The Weatherlight made it in time thanks to its captain, Shanna. The episode begins on the Weatherlight's deck, where Karn and the other planeswalkers with him need to decide where to go next. The Phyrexian threat is even bigger than they realized, and they're running out of time. So basically, they need allies, like really powerful allies. We saw how threatening the Phyrexians were in the last few episodes. Shieldred and Rona in episode one, even while wounded, outmatched Karn, a planeswalker. In episode two, it was only a handful of spies, but they completely overwhelmed the entire Dominarian court, plus five united planeswalkers. And in the last episode, there was only one Phyrexian, but yet it demonstrated it could split into many and multiply by fusing itself into mechanical technology. And so yet again, the planeswalkers were outmatched. And let's not forget a key thing here, too. It was revealed to the planeswalkers by Teferi that planeswalkers are susceptible to Phyrexian influence, which means they can become Phyrexianized. It could be as easy as touching Phyrexian oil that could change them. Until now, it was thought planeswalkers were immune to becoming Phyrexian. And Karn is the only one who is still immune. He's a machine himself, which is why he's been keeping an artifact called the Silex, hidden and secret from his human comrades. The Silex, Karn believes, is powerful enough to destroy the Phyrexians, but he doesn't know how to operate it. No one does. Right. So back on the Weatherlight, it's clear for now that they need to recruit help. Fast. Luckily, these planeswalkers can traverse all across the multiverse, and they have friends in far places. 
Teferi, Karn, Jaya, and Joda decide to split up in search of these friends. Jaya decides to seek out Dominarian help. I mean, there are already rallied soldiers here under Danatha Capuchin's command. Who could fight? Meanwhile, Joda decides to go to Yavimaya, which is a grove of elves, to recruit his friends there. And Teferi and Karn go to the Mana Rig, the place where Karn had hid the Silex and where his friend Joyra, an artificer, waits. Karn knows the Silex is the key here, but he can't decipher it on his own. He needs Joyra's help. We first follow Jaya to the Red Iron Mountains, which is a truly beautiful place. Jaya even spends a moment to recollect that she could see herself relaxing in a cabin one day in a place like this, but then snorts at the thought of retiring at all because she's Jaya and she would never. To our surprise, she's reunited with Ajani, our Leonin planeswalker. Ajani, if you'll remember, had been separated from the others after the attack of the council in episode two. Remember, he had kind of jumped, like cat jumped away onto another balcony. And of course, the regular human planeswalkers couldn't follow that. And we haven't seen him since then. But it seems like he's been here helping to recruit warriors with the help of Danatha Capuchin. So Danatha is a Bonalish warrior, regal and beautiful, dressed in that classic dominarian warrior garb of a white cloak, golden-rimmed armor highlighted with intricate stained glass. And I'll read to you here of describing what her armor looks like. Her armor gleamed silver with ribbons of gold crossed across her chest like Gerard's sash, embedded with stained glass that gleamed in red, scarlet, and yellow petals. Her sword's fuller has the same stained glass coloration. This brave look on her face combined with her dominarian armor and sword must be a relief for Johnny and Jaya to see. They need someone like her, a proud, benevolent strength that is core to the Dominarian-style warriors. And Danatha's father, Aaron, has recently disappeared. He was at the council that went amok with the Phyrexians in episode two, and we haven't seen him since. So, as Aaron's heir, Danatha has just recently taken command of the Banalish warriors with a determination to find and rescue her father. She won't agree to help Jaya and Ajani until the stirring of Phyrexians has been dealt with here. Sounds as if there's been a swarm of them hiding out in nearby caves. And here's a quote. Jaya stretched her fingers, pulling flame from the air. The heat basked across her skin. Well, one sure way to get someone out of a cave is smoke. Meanwhile, Joda ventures to the ruins of Krug in Yavamaya, home of the elves. This place is described as ancient earthy, filled with trees and shrouded in faded light. Here, Joda is approached by an elf named Miria. Miria is described as appearing young, even though she is definitely not, with light skin dappled with gold around her bright, intelligent eyes. She and Joda have never met before, but apparently Miria recognized him on sight. There had been stories told to the Yavimayan elves about Joda the Eternal, the Archmage. So, just to highlight how famous our friend Joda is here, He's so powerful that there are stories told about him across the multiverse. So even Maria regaled her dreams to fight alongside him one day and to save Dominaria together. Since this is the first time Joda is meeting Maria, the leader of the Yavimayan elves, it takes him a minute to recognize who she is. Even still, some of Joda's pride is ruffled by her because Maria examines him like an archaeological artifact. I mean, to be fair, I'd be a little uncomfortable too, Joda. Like, I get you. Just because Joda is 4,000 years old, and a multiverse legend, he's still human. I think Mary is a little starstruck. Anyway, she reveals she cannot help Joda. 
she can't recruit the help of the elves who had sought refuge in the ruins from the impending Phyrexian threat. This is a rather unusual thing. Usually elves don't seek shelter in old ruins, and Joda remarks to himself on how already Dominaria is changing. Maria shows wisdom and knowledge on the gravity of the Phyrexian threat, though, but she insists that the elves must fight on their home ground, the defensive tactic. Which Joda, of course, finds issue with. He argues that it's better to snuff out the Phyrexian threat now as opposed to letting Yavamaya burn when the Phyrexians inevitably come for them. And in response, Maria silently laughs at him. Oh, I bet Joda didn't like that. No, he definitely does not. You know, I like this Maria character. She is not afraid to ruffle Joda's feathers, like so to speak. Who else does that, right? Jaya. <laughs> Besides Jaya, right? right, who is like a total boss pyromancer who has been by Joda's side since the beginning. But like Maria is the first character, right, that on sight is ruffling Joda. Like no one ruffles Joda, the archmage, the eternal. Yeah, and Joda is actually unsuccessful in getting Maria to fight with him. Her concern for her people is just too much for her to risk. Well, we've heard that excuse before, back in episode two, when Karn is trying to convince the Dominarian Council to fight. I mean, but come on, what is more important than the Phyrexians, am I right? I think this just shows how intangible a Phyrexian threat is to many members of the multiverse. It's been so long since the Phyrexians were even acknowledged as a threat, and unless they were actually there at the time or had seen them again since, it would be pretty difficult to truly understand a Phyrexian and how dangerous they are. I mean, think about, like, actually I was going to say, imagine if, like, we saw a dragon, we'd be like, if someone told us there was a dragon, we'd be like, yeah, okay, right? Sure, uh uh-huh, right. Yeah. And it's like, and until you see them in person, it's really hard to fathom, right, what this is or how dangerous they could be or what they were capable of even, right? They've almost been relegated to myth. Yeah, yeah, they seem more of legend at this point. I mean, you have a point. I I just can't help but feel all of this is just a ticking time bomb right now. Like, they are running out of time, and there's just this unwillingness to help or to fight. Oh, just you wait. So, back with the Banalish warriors. Jaya, Danatha, and Ajani move to the cave system where the Phyrexians are hiding. Ajani helps to systematically take out some of the Phyrexian guards of the caves, without the greater swarm noticing. Danatha and her Banalish warriors move forward to flank the cave, all of them still concealed and hidden in the undergrowth and boulders. It's then Jaya's turn to unleash her flame inside the cave when Danatha gives the signal. As soon as she does, the Phyrexians lurch into attack. Unfortunately, as we knew prior to this, the Phyrexians have the upper hand against regular sword weapons. As soon as the Banalish warriors start cleaving the Phyrexians into pieces, each of those individual pieces just sprouts legs into new abominations. The only thing that can destroy them is Jaya's fire magic. She's on top of it at first, helping to rid the Phyrexian chunks as they are cleaved. But then more and more of them start to pour out of the cave. So remember that story you told in episode one about the fire ants attacking you? I think that's exactly what just happened. They just stirred up a Phyrexian nest. Yikes. There's a passage here too I want to highlight. The knights had revealed themselves too early. Their inexperience showed. They fought as if their opponents were ordinary soldiers, rather than interplanar horrors. This just shows again, like we mentioned earlier, that it's been so long since anyone has had to actually fight a Phyrexian, no one even knows how. I would also argue that these these Phyrexians that we're seeing now seem scarier. Like, they've been dormant all this time, or so we thought, but suddenly Shieldred can travel between planes, which Phyrexians shouldn't be able to do. 
And planeswalkers are susceptible to Phyrexianization now. And like last episode, we witnessed a single Phyrexian turn into many and take over an entire watchtower of powerful technology, overwhelming our four planeswalkers in like a matter of hours. There is something seriously scary going on here. And I think our heroes are realizing this too late. Most definitely. But planeswalkers are still planeswalkers. Let's not forget that. So Jaya sends in a vortex of flame to dispatch a few of these new Phyrexians pouring out of the cave. Danitha fights bravely too. And Ajani is, well, he's Ajani. He's one of the best warriors in the multiverse. He cleaves Phyrexians with his axe and actually halts the advance. But just when Jaya thinks this is because they've gained the upper hand, a new Phyrexian emerges from the cave. He was human form, broad and muscular, with pale armor merging into his torso. Metal spikes curved through his pale blonde hair like horns, and his orange irised eyes wept black oil across his ice-white cheeks. He held up his double set of arms, which merges at the biceps, an ironic welcome. And this Phyrexian speaks to them. What? Wait, what? You said speak? Yeah, so this is Airtai. Phyrexianized Airtai, I should say. Jaya recognizes him. So Airtai was one of the original crew of the Weatherlight, that big ship that came in to save everybody, hundreds of years ago. And he was dead, or, well, I guess we now know what really happened to him. It's such a pleasure to be back, he says to Jaya and the others. I have learned so, so much in my time away. Would you like to see? Oh, we have a sarcastic Phyrexian. Awesome. (laughs) And that isn't the worst of it. What could be worse than Airtai being back as a Phyrexian? Well, he reveals his pet project, Aaron Capuchin. Danitha's father. So the story transitions us back to Karn in Joyra's workshop as he examines the sketch of the tablet he'd found in the caves during episode one. The symbols he stares at are still a mystery, the key to unlocking the Silex still out of reach. He and Teferi are both on the mana rig, discussing their list of allies. Teferi returns after speaking with Daragaz, leader of the Shivian dragons. The dragons are deliberating joining the fight, and many of the other clans, the Gitu, the Viashino, won't commit until the dragons do. However, Karn and the others have gained an unlikely new ally, the goblins. To be clear, the goblins allied with the planeswalkers against the Phyrexians to call dibs. They wanted to claim that they joined first <laughs> as leverage in politics. So very typical goblin-like behaviors. Hey, at least they have allies, though. As Teferi and Karn are remarking on this, a loud screech interrupts the otherwise quiet of the mana rig. Then an impact rattles Joyra's workshop. Teferi and Karn leave the workshop to examine what had found them. Now, up in Shiv's skies, the weatherlight had been in camouflage, but it still couldn't hide from a Phyrexian hunting them. Unfurled, the Phyrexiani dominated the sky. Its thin, bat-like wings had clawed metal tines with too many joints, and its body was a mass of fibers. Oh, so we have a flying Phyrexian. Great. And it easily outmatches the weatherlight. Its magical weapons just go straight through the mesh of fibers that make up this creature. But they are not alone in the skies here. A shadow loomed closer to descend into the scene, and a full-grown dragon, glinting in the sun, strikes the Phyrexian. It's Daragaz coming to their aid. Okay, okay. Can I just geek out for a minute? I love dragons. They are by far my favorite mythical creature in fantasy. And the dragons in magic are especially some of my favorites, both as like characters, as icons of power, and just like their aesthetics. 
Dragons are so creatively different from plane to plane, character to character, across magic's history and the multiverse. Derigaz, I'll describe for you a little of how Derigaz in particular looks. First of all, he's huge. I mean, he's a legendary dragon. Of course, he's going to be massive. But he's somewhat humanoid in his looks, too. He has these two long, muscular front arms with, like, hand-like claws, back legs also kind of humanoid in a similar way, and this broad-shouldered body, his skin less scaly and more leathery, like a bat. His coloration is a dark umber, striations along his tail, horns like a ram encasing his lizard-like face. And Derigaz, he obliterates this Phyrexian. We had already seen what Jaya's fire can do to them. Could you imagine dragon fire? Well, yeah, that's what he does. He rips the Phyrexian apart with his claws, and before it could reassemble itself, Derigaz breathes fire over its pieces. And I quote to you, he exhaled a flame so white-hot over the Phyrexian monstrosity that it did not burn. It vaporized. Amazing. And what's more, Darga says the dragons will join the fight. <gasps> so an extremely powerful ally has now joined into the fray. Okay, so now back with Ajani, Jaya, and Danitha. Danitha's father, Aaron, steps out from the cave at Ertai's beckoning. It's clear looking at Aaron that Ertai had been experimenting with Phyrexianization. The modifications on him are almost artful, but Aaron is still partly conscious. Unlike other Phyrexians, he seems to have some of himself still in there. He visibly fights with himself, this look of anguish on his face when he sees Tanitha, which is pretty amazing because up until this point, you know, you're Phyrexianized, you're Phyrexianized, but he somehow is like, it seems like he's somehow mentally strong enough to be resisting. Yeah, yeah he seems to be resisting. And I couldn't imagine what Danitha must be feeling right now, like seeing her father, but also not really her father, right? It's like he's he's Phyrexianized, but also not. He hasn't like gone fully over into Phyrexianization. He's still there. It must be a terrible, terrible feeling. The worst of it is that Ertai is just so proud when talking about his creation of Eren. Like he's boasting about how beautiful the change can be. Aesthetically, the way it's described, it is certainly beautiful, like intricate clockwork. Jaya even describes it as a star map, but the horror of it really overshadows the beauty. Ertai has tortured and mutilated a human being against their will for the sake of what he believes is utter beauty. It's a chilling window into the mind of the Phyrexian. Danitha, of course, is furious. She steps forward to challenge Ertai on the battlefield, sword in hand, and Ertai commands Eren to attack his own daughter. He does. The power of the Phyrexianization in him done to him, like, overpowering his own consciousness. But it's clear Aaron Capuchin is still very aware that he is attacking his own daughter and it's killing him inside to do it. He is weeping while he does it. Finally, in the midst of this sword fight with her, he manages to say, Danitha, do your duty. Danitha has this moment of devastation, but she realizes what her father, her true father beneath all that Phyrexianization is asking. So she kills him by cutting off his head. As a mercy. Oh my god, that's so brutal. Oh, that's so rough. Like, I feel for her so much. And that takes strength and courage that, I mean, who has that that much strength and courage? Who could do that to their own father? Because she thinks she's lost him. He comes back. She has this extra moment with him, but it's not really him. And in that moment, he says, 
to kill him. And she does. And she has to be the one to do it. It's like, oh, she's so brave. And she's so brave and she's so full of honor. And she, you know, she's been taught by him that the people come first and that she has to step up now. And and she knows that with her father gone, she's going to have to step up. And yeah, because she's the heir, right? She's the heir to all of these warriors and this country in Dominaria. So she is now, you know, leader. Yeah, I mean, uh, I can't even... I can't even imagine. It's so sad to think about. It. I can't even imagine. And and just like the amount of conflicting feelings she has to have right now of I've got to make it through this fight. I just killed my dad, who wasn't really my dad. He'd already been, had his human a lot of his humanity taken from him. So, so she had to mercy kill him. And and then what's the future hold for her and personally, but also, you know, kind of professionally in her military career. So Right. Oh, brutal. Right. It's a rough moment. And just um, there's the vividness of this fight where Aaron is actually weeping while he's striking at her. Ugh. Right. He's literally warring within himself over trying to fight the Phyrexianization that Airtight did to him. But he's just all he can do is cry because he is out of control of his own body. That like Aaron, it, like for him in this, in the, the true Aaron beneath uh, just after going through all this torture, it just must be a horrible like feeling deep inside to have to fight against your own daughter and realize what you are doing consciously um it's just another like you had said it before but it's like it's another chilling window into what phyrexianization really is and how brave of aaron too to be like i can't i'm doing my best to fight this i'm not gonna be able to fight it forever i don't want to turn into this and he knew what was right and he asked her to do it and, you know, he knew what he was asking, too. So in his final moments, he he was brave. He allowed Janetha to be brave. But ultimately, it's just devastating. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's one of our first real devastating deaths um, that of someone that we knew um, of seeing in this war. And by the way, Ertai, he's just mildly annoyed that Danitha destroyed his art form. That's what he's upset about. No respect for art, he says but I suppose I can always sew that back on. So in response, he waves his hand and then, I mean... I'm going to read to you what Airtai summons. The mountain shook, stone broke and rubble tumbled down. Sharp shale spun past Jaya, cutting her cheek. She gasped and clutched at her injury. A Phyrexian monstrosity broke free from the mountain in front of them, shattering it into rubble. The roar of rock sliding from its body brought tears to Jaya's eyes. The monstrosity reared into the sky, so large that it blotted out the sun. Its plated body rose, brimming with complex mechanisms and weaponry, perched upon immense, deceptively thin legs. Its head was a battering ram, and its tail ended in a stinger, dripping with oily venom. So, listeners, Airtai brings to you a Phyrexian dreadnought, and they are bigger and badder than ever before. Phyrexian dreadnoughts are essentially enormous phyrexianized creatures, in case you couldn't tell from the description. Similar to other phyrexians we've seen, they are partially organic, except on a monolithic scale. Like, even Jaya is wondering now how they are supposed to fight something like that. However, in the midst of this, we cut back to Maria and Joda and Yavamaya. The forest is in disturbance. Birds taking to the sky, monkeys shouting, a forest cat even roars. And Maria turns to Joda with concern, saying that something is coming. In the distance, something immense emerges from the trees. Like the Phyrexian dreadnought we just saw appear from the earth, a dragon engine appears, tearing through the land, big as a mountain. 
However, unlike a Phyrexian Dreadnought, this dragon engine is fully a machine, an ancient machine, disturbed now and not friendly. We can only presume it is a tool of the Phyrexians set loose the moment Airtai summoned the Dreadnought. This massive artifact is named due to its unique roar, the dragon engine. Instead of breathing fire, emits sound waves so destructive and intense it pulverizes anything in its path, particularly organic material. And the dragon engine is headed straight for them. Now, Maria and Joda and the rest of the elves are in some serious trouble. They're going to have to fight together, it looks like. Maria witnesses in horror as this dragon engine just obliterates the ancient rainforests of their home. The rest of the elves, too, evacuated their homes and warriors prepared for the attack. Against a machine this immense, though, normal weapons aren't doing much damage. Joda summons his magic at the ready. The dragon engine does this sweeping motion with its claws. As it does, it uproots every last tree in its path, even gouging into the earth beneath them. So that just gives you an idea of how gigantic this thing is. The entire rainforest is destroyed by just this one move. Ancient trees and homes and creatures just gone. However, deep within this open ditch of loose earth and trees and groundwater, ancient artifacts from the Thrawn city that stood here before are revealed. Maria recognizes one with her elvish sight. Joda is impressed that she was able to spot something so tiny from this distance. So not only is he like thwarted by her like sass toward him, but now he's impressed by her. So <laughs> Maria is awesome. Yeah. I am like I am totally on Team Maria right now. And Maria knows this artifact could destroy the dragon engine, but the trick now is getting to it. Just as Maria recognizes this artifact, Joda also recognizes the individual operating the dragon engine from the cockpit inside its skull. It's Rona. You mean episode one, Rona? The one with the red eye cannon who had attacked Karn? Yes, that Rona. Rona charges the dragon engine for another roar. Now, at this proximity, a roar would essentially wipe them all out, and the elvish archer's arrows are doing nothing to damage it. I guess the war has officially started. Jeez. Okay, we're back with Airtai, just as he commands the Phyrexian Dreadnought to attack. It spews venom. The acid-melting Banalish Knights, crushing Phyrexians, melting trees, and boiling creeks. The other Phyrexians, amidst the Dreadnought's cacophony of destruction, launch themselves at the Banalish Knights, Jaya and Ajani. They fight bravely. Danitha shows her skill as captain in trying to protect her legion of archers and loose them on the Dreadnought. But like the Dragon Engine, the arrows don't even pierce its armor. Jaya unleashes her flame at the surrounding Phyrexians, and Ajani of course fights at her back. But against a Dreadnought? It arcs over the battlefield, blotting out the light, preparing another attack. And then Airtai stops it. The Phyrexians retreat to hide under the Dreadnought. Call off your warriors, Danitha, he commands. Jaya is exhausted, as is Ajani. This battle is heavily not in their favor. Then Airtai commands the unthinkable. Jaya, Ajani, if you don't give yourselves up to me, I will tell the Dreadnought to eradicate these people. All of them. So back in Yavimaya... Joda prepares his magic to defend himself and the elves against the dragon engine's roar. He creates this white energy field around them, softening the roar so it wouldn't kill them on impact. Maria is insistent that she get to the center of the battlefield for that artifact she saw earlier, and Joda agrees to come with her to protect her from the dragon engine. She taps her spear to the ground, and the Thran technology transforms into a glider. Together, they drive through the air, towards the feet of the dragon engine, quickly filling with brackish water and debris. 
Joda creates a protective bubble of magic around them while Maria digs for this artifact, and the dragon engine roars towards them. Joda's magic holds, but it's clear how much it exhausts him to do it. His shields fail right as the roar stops, and Joda falls to his knees. But luckily, it was worth it. Maria finds the artifact she was looking for. She holds it up. It's just this silver globe covered in golden thrawn traceries. I imagine it to be about the size of a softball. Maria has good eyes to spot that all the way across the field. Joda thinks the same thing. I think he's impressed. Maria twists this globe along the symbols to realign it, and it begins to blink rapidly, counting down. So it's an ancient bomb? Yeah, kind of. Except instead of an explosion, it opens up a vacuum, like literally a hole of nothing, and it swallows up the dragon engine into absolute silence. It tries to roar, but the sound no longer carries. Joda and Maria make it out of there before it goes off, though, right? Oh, yes. Joda peels open a doorway with the last of his magic so they can escape the vacuum bomb. They watch from a safe distance as the dragon engine fails. The machinery just stops working. The organic bits that were hanging off it froze. And Rona staggers out of the hatch in the dragon's skull, descending to the relative safety of the forest outside the vacuum. However, the elves assemble around her periphery. Rona flees at the sight of them, and the elves chase after her. Though Maria just watches this unfold, solemn, mourning the loss of the ancient forest groves, utterly obliterated in a matter of minutes. The dragon engine's complete destruction was as impressive as it was tragic. There is a silver lining to this event, though. Maria decides to join the war. Not like she has a choice at this point. Right? <laughs> it's either join the war or you're dead. Yeah. Like, it, that, was a, that was a way for, for them to be forced into fighting. It's unfortunate, but again, it is a silver lining. So we return to Jaya, Ajani, and Danatha in their face-off against Ertai and the Dreadnought. So Ertai had just commanded Jaya and Ajani to surrender themselves, else everyone would face utter destruction from the Dreadnought. But before they can do anything, something massive and golden appears on the horizon. It's the Golden Argosi, captained by Rada herself. Okay, so the Golden Argosi is literally a ship. A massive ship. Like, different than the Weatherlight, this ship literally looks like a pirate ship, and it is filled with warriors of Keldon. This ship swoops in from the sky, and the warriors descend upon the dreadnought's scaly back, making their way to its head. The ship, until now, had thought to be lost to legend. It was literally lost. But Rada had rediscovered it. For those of you who don't know Rada, she is a half-elf. She's a legendary warlord. Right at this moment, she is definitely a sight for sore eyes. She's dressed in impressive leather armor with long, dreadlocked hair, pointed ears of the elves, and her skin is bluish, painted over with fierce black and red war paint. Rada leads her warriors straight to the dreadnought's eye, and then she stabs the dreadnought right in the eye. It shrieks out, and the Bonalish warriors on the ground surge forward in the rallying attack. Jaya and Ajani and the others defend the Keldons on the dreadnought from the other Phyrexians, and the dreadnought's legs begin to buckle its massive body collapsing to the ground. Ertai, of course, is furious. Yeah, of course he is. He just witnessed Rada pierce his dreadnought in the eyeball and kill it. I'll just note, this is like the third or fourth time we've seen artifacts be an essential key to defeating the Phyrexians. That and fire. Something to keep in mind for the future. So we end this episode with Karn and Joyra in her workshop after all of this has gone down. Um, together, they're kind of reconnecting after so long being apart. And... Uh, and Joyra mentions Venser, um, and Venser was, he was part of the last war with the Phyrexians. He was a really close friend of Karn. He was almost like his pupil, almost, and Venser 
uh, Venser was killed in the last war against the Phyrexians, and Venser had essentially sacrificed himself in order to save Karn and the others in this last war. Um, and that kind of emphasizes almost like it's almost an insight, like a window into why Karn is so personally invested in taking over the Phyrexians, hunting down proof of the Phyrexians that they still exist and that they are still a threat was always Venser's initiative. So Karn is kind of living in Venser's memory by hunting down these the, the proof of the Phyrexians. So we kind of get that window into Karn's past a little bit. And it's obvious that the loss of Venser took a very, very heavy toll on Karn. He was never the same again. And Joyra and Karn kind of recollect over the fact that Karn never really talked about it. He kind of buried it deep underneath his, like, machine golem persona and never talked about his emotions and then but ran away to go and then hunt ran the Phyrexians by himself yeah yeah and so Joyra just kind of has this real human moment with Karn and like almost surfaces those emotions that Karn had been hiding away by talking about Venser for the first time you know and and kind of really recollecting what it did to him and then the moment is interrupted by Joda who walks into the workshop and announces that they believe they have a spy in the new coalition. So that's that's the, literally the last sentence in this episode, and we have no idea what that means. But there is a spy in somewhere in the company of these characters that we know. There is a Sprexian spy. Well, there has to be, right? Because they all split up. They all went to go do different things. And somehow, every single one of them got attacked. Not a single yeah, member. Yeah, it was a unified attack. Mm-hmm. Yep. That that couldn't have been coincidence, Mm-mm. right? It wasn't coincidence. There was someone tipping off the Phyrexians over that they were going to these places at this time, and they were able to coordinate, the Phyrexians were able to coordinate a unified attack. And, and so, Which yeah. is terrifying because they, you know, if, if Maria hadn't found that artifact, if the um, Argosi hadn't shown up, if mm-hmm. the dragons hadn't come to help them, they, what would they could have been completely wiped out. They, this could have been the end of the coalition. Annihilated, yeah. Right there. Yeah. So it was a very planned, very succinct attack. So who told? Right. And just remember, like, they, you could be a spy and not know it, right? That was the whole thing about last episode is that in this watchtower, Karn is the only planeswalker, the only person, really, the only individual that is immune to Phyrexianization. Everybody else could be a spy and not know it, just like Sten was, right? Sten was a sleeper agent who didn't know he was a sleeper agent until the Phyrexians decided to, like, basically un- reveal the fact that Sten was a, was a sleeper agent and took control of him. So it, we don't know who it is, and neither do they. Yeah, so it's not explained, but I kind of imagine it as, like, you black out for a little while, and then, like, you just, you have, like, gaps in your memory. But, like, yeah, that kind of happens yeah. anyway. Like, you know, sometimes you're driving home, and you're like, I'm leaving work. And then you go into your mind and you just start thinking about stuff. And then you're like, oh, I'm home. How did I get here? <laughs> um, yeah, like on autopilot yeah, almost. But you just don't, like automatic motions. But yeah. you don't think anything about it because you're just like, oh, whatever. That happens sometimes. I imagine that is what this is like, like being a sleeper agent. Like you maybe have like missed time, but it's something you could easily brush off or you're like, maybe I don't remember doing that, but I mean, clearly I did because I wrote it in my notes or something. So it's not like you just have these like massive chunks of time that are unaccounted for. You have no way of knowing that this stuff is happening. It could be like the Phyrexian part takes over for one sentence of a conversation potentially. Right. Right. And like, and I think that's the scariest part, 
Yeah. Right. Is that you don't know if you are. And it must be so like we saw the panic unfold in last episode. Right. So I can only imagine that knowing that there is a spy, there has to be a spy amongst someone, someone. It can't be Karn, but it can be literally anybody else. It could be Joyra. It could be Joda. It could be Jaya. It could be a Johnny. It could be Shayna, the the captain of the Weatherlight. It could be Rada, right? Like we have no idea. It could be Maria, the elf. Like we have no idea who could be this spy, but there is someone who is spying on the new coalition. Yeah. And telling their plans straight to the Phyrexians so that the Phyrexians have an advantage right now, which is so scary for our planeswalkers. And so we only have one more episode after this one to wrap up the Dominaria storyline, but don't forget this is a story arc. So this is part one of a four set story arc. So we're going to be covering all of it. There's a lot more to come. A lot of this is going to wrap up in the next episode, but what will it mean for the future? As always, you can go read these episodes on mtgstory.com. That's a really easy link to to go to if you want to read the full story now that you've gotten the synopsis, or if you want to go ahead and read episode five ahead of our synopsis for you. Thanks for joining us in the multiverse. Have Have a magical magical day. day!